I read about a church split that happened a number of years ago. This is a church in Dallas, from what I understand. And this church, it got bad. Sometimes there's conflict in church. And in this church, uh, there ended up being two sides, and they're going at it. And as things developed, uh, there was a, a church split. But then both sides decided that, hey, our group, we're the ones that should get to keep the building. You guys leave. And the other said, no, we get to keep the building. You guys leave. And they ended up taking this to the courts to decide who is the one that should be able to uh, keep the building. First of all, what an embarrassment for a church to go before the uh, public courts like this and make Christians, make Christ look terrible like that. Uh, But the courts decided, uh, I think wisely, they said, you know what, Uh, this shouldn't be for us to have to decide this. Uh, This church was part of a, a denominational structure, and they said, you guys have your church courts, you guys need to figure this out, go before them. So they went before their church courts and their authorities and all this and lots of wrangling and arguing and all these things that happened. And they had to investigate and each side made their claims. And at the end of this, they were able to trace how this all got started. And it got started that there was a church dinner that they had and there was an elder in the church and he was upset because the child that he was sitting next to got a bigger slice of ham than he had. As far as I understand, true story. And upset, and it leads to this just embarrassing church split. Offended? Well, I, I guess rightly so. How dare that child have a bigger slice of ham than me? Don't they realize my importance? Don't they realize my value here, my dignity? And you're giving this child the bigger piece of ham. It's ridiculous. You know, an attitude like that uh, would not be something that Paul would have hoped was reported to him from the Christians in, in Philippi. We finish up last week. He was talking about the kind of report that he wanted to hear from them. And he said in verse uh, 27, he said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or, or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. They're supposed to be united in Christ, united by the Holy Spirit, having this attitude of like-mindedness as they strive, as they they stand together, and even even suffer together. So now, as we get into this next section, recognize this is a continuation of this. Paul is encouraging them to have an attitude that they will need in order, in the midst of even a hostile world, to stand together, to strive together, to be able to suffer together. And there's a certain attitude they need to have. And there is this example that they are to look to, to draw strength from, to draw their example from. So let's read together Philippians chapter 2. We'll do 1 through 11 here. Going right on. Remember, the chapter divisions were added way later. So Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The magnificent passage that we get to look at today, and hopefully you'll spend time continuing to think about and meditate. So thinking about this, the first four verses, we'll look at this first And I want to just summarize this in a way that's pretty straightforward, pretty plain. Think of others first, not yourselves. That's the straightforward point he is trying to to get across here to them. And you know, people don't do a great job of this. Have you noticed that? If you you need any um, evidence of this, uh, have any of you been to the uh, school drop-off lines? Uh, Dropping off your kids with the car? Now, okay, now my kids are beyond that at, at this point because uh, they're all in middle school or high school or college, but may, so maybe things are different this year. Maybe all the parents are super considerate, you know, and they, this, all of them have decided, you know what, it, this would work great if we all uh, just, uh, you know, make sure our kid gets out really quick and we pull as far ahead, and, uh, but it doesn't seem like it's like that. I don't know. It's like uh, some parents, it's like... They, feel like, well, I have to be like right in the best spot because if I had to pull up another, either I could pull up another uh, 10, 20 feet and let other cars in, but that would mean that my little child has to walk like an extra 15 feet. You know, I can't do that to him. You know, we need to, it's, if I need to have a 10-minute conversation with my child before he goes in and pack his lunch right there in the line and what other people are waiting. So anyways, either you've experienced it or you haven't. Uh, <clears throat> But there's so many examples I think we give. People in this world, they jockey for position. They jockey for advantage of each other. They're always looking for stuff. Whether it might be in the office, it might be right after you get done for church. Kids fighting about who gets to sit in the front seat. So we got that. Pay attention, my children. Okay? (laughs) There's a lot of great applications in this message. But we need to think of others first and not ourselves. So let's look at this passage again and kind of walk through it. It starts in verse 1. He's saying, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, notice he's pleading with them. He's giving them reasons for, to, to follow up on, uh, to, to do what he is going to ask them to do. So we need to ask this of ourselves too. I mean, do we have any encouragement from Christ? Has he been an encouragement to you? If the answer is yes, then really consider, think about what he is going to tell us to do. If there, do you have any comfort from his love that Jesus Christ has given you? Any participation in the Spirit? Are you united uh, with one another, in, with the Holy Spirit, with other believers? Any affection, any sympathy, do you have any of that in your life? If the answer is no to this, you might really need to take a look. There's something really wrong with your spiritual life. Maybe you're not a Christian yet or something is really out of whack. But if the truth is you say, yeah, these things are true, that's motivation for what he is going to tell us to do. 
And he says in verse 2, complete my joy. This is another instance of of joy or rejoice in the book of Philippians. We keep seeing it over and over. He already had joy. He had a lot of joy, but he's saying, I could have even more. You could complete my joy. The word complete here uh, can be used of like uh, stuffing a net full, as full as it can be. So you can make my joy even, even more complete. And guess what? You'll have joy too if you, if you do this. It says, by being of the same mind, having the same mindset. And just going to explain what this means. It doesn't mean that we all agree on error. That wouldn't be what he's going for here. But to have the same mind, the same mindset, the same attitude, it says having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Then he goes on, and now he's going to unpack this more specifically. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So as he's saying this, I mean, just think of that verse, first of all. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Think about the impact, the change that would make if people took that seriously, people lived that out. Think of the impact that would have in your family, in your life, in all of your relationships. Think of the impact that would make in in any local church when people are, are living that out, that we're not doing things from, from selfish ambition. You know what selfish ambition is? It's, you know, how does this benefit me? What's in it for me? Or conceit, which can be translated as vainglory, a vain or exaggerated self-evaluation. We're puffed up. We think we're, we're of such importance, more importance than everyone else. This unrealistic view so we're not supposed to do things out of that. That's the, the negative side. Don't do things of your selfish ambition, putting yourself first, seeking your own interests. But then he says, uh, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. He says count others. It's not, you know, well, how many are there? One, two, three, four. You know, deacons taking attendance. That's not the type of counting. This is kind of counting that means uh, to look upon, to consider other people as more important, more significant. So you're not just thinking of yourself first. You're not considering your own interests, living for yourself, but you're thinking about what about other people? What about their good? What about their needs? What can I do for them? And this means to look upon them, to do this, to count, to consider. This is, a, this is an intentional decision that you have to make. That are you going to just naturally, because the way we're wired as selfish human beings is to consider our own interests, what's in it for me? Uh, But we have to make a decision to look upon other people and realize, hey, these other people are important. These other people, I got to care about their good. I got to care about what's best for them. Let me say that's part of what love means, is actually caring about the actual real best interests about other people. And this takes humility. Because if we're just viewing ourselves that I deserve the highest place, I'm such a great person, I'm, I'm fantastic, then we're always going to think, well, yeah, these other you know, plebeians, they should be below here. They're put on this earth here to serve me and to prop me up and make me look good. But this passage is saying the exact opposite of this. We're supposed to have humility. 
Humility says I'm willing to take the lower place. I'm willing to to go second. I'm willing to go last. I'm willing to put other people first. You know, and in this, this, that's hard in our society. That was also a hard teaching in the society of that day. They viewed uh, pursuing and maintaining honor as this high calling, avoiding shame. So this call to humility, this was radically countercultural. But as believers, as people that our mindset is shaped by Christ, shaped by the gospel, we're supposed to live in a way that is countercultural, that is different from the world around us. Being willing to take the second place, to take the lowest place. There was a conductor of a symphony orchestra that was once asked, what is the most difficult instrument to play? And I don't know what they were expecting, some you know, technically difficult instrument, but the conductor replied, and said, second violin. And he said, I can find plenty of first violinists, but to find someone that can play second violin with enthusiasm, to play it well, to put their heart into it, to not be worried about the fact that, well, I'm not first violin, he says, that's a problem. And if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. Someone once wrote, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. It's a hard thing, put other people first. We're going to see this is the big application of this. Uh, and this as we look at verses 1 through 11, uh, right off the bat in verses 1 through 4, it's going to be giving us, this is the application. This is what you need to do. Sometimes in Scripture it gives the doctrine first and then it gives the application. This time it's, it's front-loading this, saying this is what you're supposed to do and then I'm going to give you some backup. I'm going to give you some theological reasons why you should be doing this. Verse 4 impacts it even more. Each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The word only there is actually kind of added, kind of softens it, but really just look not to your own interests. I mean, there is a way that we are naturally going to look to our own interests. That's just kind of natural. Uh, Need to stay alive and such. Uh, But we're so wrapped up in that. And what we need to do is get our minds off of our own when we say interests here, we don't mean well, what interests me. What we mean is, or what he means is, you know, what is good for me, our own goals, our own values, our own desires. Everyone cares about what is good for me. So Paul is saying, put the good of others before your own good, above your own personal goals. So as we think about this, it means each of us, we need to stop acting like we're the, the center of the universe, we need to start acting like we're the most important person in the world. And without Christ and our natural instincts, and that's, that's what we want to do. We, we think everything revolves around us. I mean, children grow up that way. That's a natural thing. They're, everyone exists to serve them. We need to, to be taught. We need to be, uh, have our, our lives changed so that we stop thinking that way. We need to start caring about other people. That's what he's telling us to do. Care about other people. But people, sometimes we're so wrapped about, about our own problems. And yeah, life has problems. There's plenty of things to concern you. That's the thing. If you're waiting for some time where you're like, well, I don't have any more problems. Now I can worry about other people. Now I can be... That's just not going to happen. There's always going to be stuff. And Paul isn't saying, okay, never you know, take care of your own stuff, but get your mind you know, just off of yourself so we can look at other people and think about them, to notice them. Noticing them sometimes is the first step that we even miss. We don't even, sometimes we don't realize people are there. 
Sometimes we go through life as if everyone else in the world is just kind of a non-player character, okay? And we are, like in a video game, and like, well, I'm the, the central character. I'm the one that matters here, and these, everyone else is just kind of filler in the world. People seem like that until you get to know them. They're not like that. God knows them. They're created in the image of God. And Jesus Christ came for them. We need to put our happiness in other people. That's a big key. If you can have your happiness not just wrapped up in yourself and what is good for you, what happens to you, but if you can join your happiness to other people, then your joy can increase when they are moving in a good direction, when they are moving in a healthy direction. So our little circle of what makes me happy, most people, it's, well, what, it's just me. Or maybe they say, well, okay, my family. I mean, we're, tight, we're a tight family, so if good things happen to my family, I'll be happy for them. But besides that, no, it doesn't matter. But you know what? The more that we grow in love like Christ, the more that circle expands and takes in more people around us. And it's not just us, but then we can have our happiness in the happiness of other people. Which is going to mean that ultimately we want them to know and love Jesus Christ. We want other people to experience salvation, to experience the joy and blessedness of having a relationship with with God, with Jesus Christ, as their treasure forever. And when you put your happiness in other people's happiness, then it, you're able to do this in a way that also makes you happy. It's a beautiful thing. What a huge difference this would make if people started living this out, putting other people first. Sadly, I think a lot of people that need to hear this message, they won't even hear it. They may think, well, yeah, that's good. Other people, yes, should definitely put me first. But no, 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 that's not the point of this. It's that other people, yeah, should put you first. Uh, we need to put other people first. Yeah, what other people? No, 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 other people. Other people have needs? Yes, other people are important. They have needs. Let's care about them. So that's the first here. That's the big application. Think of others first, not yourself. But then he gets into verses 5 through 11, this awesome, great passage where he talks about Christ. And we could talk about this on, it, on our own, and we talk about the splendor of Jesus Christ. But remember, this is connected. He's going to give this next section to, as a reason, as a backup, as motivation, as an example for why we should put other people first. So this second half of the message summarized this way, follow the example of Christ. The example of Jesus Christ who came down to serve and to save. And again, we're going to go through this faster than we could otherwise. When we finish the series, we'll come back and we'll unpack this and talk about even more applications from this. But it's good for us to get the big picture of all of this. So we see in verse 5, this transition, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So again, it's about having a certain mindset, a certain attitude, a certain way of viewing the world. He's saying, have the same attitude that Jesus had, that you get from him. He's your example. And to shift your mind, your way of thinking, your view of the world in a way that matches him. If you're in Christ, view the world through, through his lens, through his way of, of thinking. And then it gets into what is called sometimes the Carmen Christi, the section. Some Bibles put this in kind of poetic form. Uh, some do, some don't. There's some debate within the scholars, whether it's poetry, whether it's uh, just very highly exalted prose. And for us, it doesn't matter. We're going to focus on, on the words here. 
Uh, some scholars, uh, they debate, was this next section here, was it a hymn, basically, that the early church used that Paul is quoting? And some make the case that it, that it is from the structure. Others say, well, it seems to be poetic, but po- poetry doesn't necessarily mean it's a hymn. If it was a hymn that the early church used, uh, this would definitely um, show you know, what the view of, their view of Christ was like. And the fact that Paul is quoting this means that he approves of it, he endorses it, and it becomes, you know, Scripture as he's using it in this context. Uh, Or it might be just that this is something that that Paul has put together. Either way, it's Scripture, it's in the Word of God, and it's this great um, uh, explanation, this great uh, telling to us of Christ and what he's done for us. And really this, we can think of this as describing Christ's journey, his mission, as a, uh, as a parabola. Think of that as a shape, okay? Looks something like this. And we see there's a big cosmic parabola that shows us Christ, that shows us uh, his three different phases in his work of salvation that he, he did for us. So we're going to work through this. Uh, this little diagram is in your notes. I encourage you to fill this in to make notes with this, because I think it's a helpful kind of visual tool to think about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for us. So at the beginning, verse 6, it says, uh, though, talking about Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. All right, this is really important that we get this right. There's some terms we need to look at here to understand this. There's ways it could be confusing, uh, trying to understand this. But I'm going to argue that what this is talking about is Christ's pre-incarnate glory. Okay? That this is Jesus Christ before what we call the incarnation, before he became a human being. That Jesus Christ always existed from eternity, uh, that before the first Christmas and before he was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit, that, that the Son of God existed as one of the members of the Trinity. And as God, it means he always existed. There was no beginning for him as God. And so I think it's referencing his, his pre-existence and also his uh, eternal existence, I think beyond and before time, and his co-equality uh, with, with God the Father, with God the Holy Spirit. One God that exists in three persons. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. So, we look at this, it says, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God. So, this is an important word, the word form that is there. This word is the Greek word morphe, and basically it has the idea of shape, okay? They use in the shape, uh, but we need to go a little bit deeper than that. Uh, we, in some of our English words, we see this word morphe, okay, a caterpillar, turns into a butterfly through, what is that process? Metamorphosis. So it's the changing of its form from caterpillar to butterfly. It has this, this change. Sometimes people talk about, you know, a shapeshifter might be a polymorph. They have more than one form, more than one shape. And this is where I need to point out that there are a few generations of people that are here that have been misled by the Power Rangers. Okay. That you've been maybe misled uh, by the mighty morphing Power Rangers uh, to assume that the word morph means to change. 
I know there's other superheroes and stuff where they talk about morphing means to change. But actually, it doesn't mean to, uh, to change. Uh, morph means shape. So again, a polymorph would be a, if you had a fictional shapeshifter, they could change their form to someone else. So yes, Joel, Beast Boy. Okay, so, but the word morph means the form that they are, that they are in. So, a wrong way of thinking about this, though, when you look at the word and what it means in Greek and how the different philosophers, Plato and everyone, use this, a wrong way to think of this would be that this form is only describing what something looks like on the outside. That would be a wrong way. So this is not saying that Jesus Christ Although he had, uh, he had the outer appearance of being God, that's not what it's saying. The word form here, uh, the way it's used in Greek, the word morphe, has a, a deeper meaning, and it means something along the lines of the outer manifestation or appearance which accurately depicts something's true nature. So there is an outer manifestation, an outer kind of rea- an outer um, expression of something, but it's not something that is detached from what it really is. It's not a disguise. It's the what you can see visibly of something, what you can perceive visibly of something that tells you what it actually is. That goes out and ex- expresses what this thing actually is. And so in this context, it means that Jesus Christ is the visible expression of the one true God. That God in his essence is invisible. Jesus makes him known. He is the one that expresses it, shows us what God is like, but he is God, and that's why he has the form of God. This here is a banana. So a banana, you think of this, uh, has the outer form of this. You can only see right now the outside of the banana. And so Somebody put this up here, somebody else brought it. I got two bananas, so thank you for the people that brought me bananas. Uh, So I have not opened this. I have not checked to see what's on the inside. So I don't know. I mean, I I don't encourage gambling, but anyone want to make a guess what's in here? Maybe it's a hot dog. Maybe it's a potato. Should we see? Let's let's find out. If it actually is something weird, that's going to mess up my illustration here, but... (laughs) Get this oh, look, on the inside, it's a banana. Yay, shock, surprise. So that's the thing. You have the outward form that tells you what the true nature of it is like. And in this case, it's a, it's a banana. Oh, here, Joel, want to take this? There you go. Thanks, buddy. So Jesus Christ in, is in the form of God. This means that he existed from all eternity as God. It expressed what he is truly like on the inside. Now, the other part, well, also, too, to back this up, we use the word transform, okay? And I looked this up in, in uh, the book of Romans when it says we're to be, you know, transformed. It's, it has the word morphe that's in it. When we're transformed by God, that's part of our spiritual growth, you know, to transform the renewing of our mind and all this. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're just changing your outward appearance, you know, I'm going to change how I, I fake it out to people and how I live on the outside. No, we're, you're being changed all the way on the inside. You know, like that caterpillar isn't just like dressing up like a butterfly. It's changing into a butterfly. And so it's an actual change of form that goes all the way down into the inside. So again, this word form or morphe is not just on the outside, 
that's part of it, but it shows what it's like on the inside. So Jesus Christ is and has been the, 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 the true God from all eternity. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And Jesus prayed in John 17.5, he said, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So this is talking about what you say is the... Um, if we talk about Jesus in three states, this would be the first one, his pre-incarnate glory. Uh, it just uh, that he had before the incarnation, before he came down and also became a, a human being. But notice it also says, we have to talk about this, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now you could look at that and say, see, oh, see, he's not actually God because he didn't count equality with God. He's like, that's too much for me, I can't. I can't grab onto that. I can't try and seize equality with God. I think it's important for us to understand that word that's there for grasped as well. Um, on one sense, the word can be used as something that is seized or something that is taken uh, in plunder. But those that have really looked at this word, notice it doesn't always mean this. It can have the idea just of, it just means it's something that is held onto, something that is clutched, something that is prized. And in fact, um, one scholar that really looked at this a number of years ago, uh, he focused on uh, just not well, just one of the word, but the phrase itself and found that, it ref- that that reference is constantly referring to something that is already present and at one's disposal. So when it says he didn't consider equality with God, something to be grasped, it doesn't mean that he's like, I'm not God, and you know what, I, sh- I should not try to, to seize that. I shouldn't, I'm not going to try to ascend. What it means is that he recognized that he is already God, and he could either grasp on to that with all of its privileges uh, to remain, you know, in heaven, in all the glory, in all the comfort, in all the perks that come from that. Or he could decide just to, to let go of those privileges. Kind of like somebody hanging from a branch. You could hang on to it, you could grasp it, you're already there. But instead, he decides to just kind of let go. And we see when he decides to do this, and this is part of God's eternal plan for salvation, uh, that he descends, that he comes down. So we get to verse 7, and it says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So this refers to what we're going to call, this is Christ's humiliation. So if you write that in the diagram here on the side of the parabola, this is the downward trajectory that he had been in heaven in glory with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, I mean, he could have just stayed there, but instead he had a mission to go on that it was in this uh, plan that the Trinity had from all eternity that God the Father would send God the Son, he would voluntarily, he would come down for the work that he was being sent to do. Now this is also what we call the incarnation, uh, that he, we're going to talk about, that he becomes a human being. It says he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, that he becomes a human being. So at the beginning, at the first stage, he's 100% God, And here he's going to become also 100% man while still being 100% God. So it's the incarnation. He adds humanity to 
his person. He takes on a second nature. Uh, but here we see the humiliation. They start at the same time, but the humiliation is actually distinct because the humiliation comes to an end, but the incarnation does not. We'll talk more about that sometime. But here, let's unpack this a little bit. It says he emptied himself. Now, when we say that, it does not mean that he emptied himself of being God. He can't empty himself of deity. That's just, that doesn't make sense. That's not something that God can do. Say, well, God can do anything. God can't stop being God. Okay, that's just an illogical thing. When you're, once you're God, if you're really God, you've always had to be God, and you're always going to be God. And also, he can't, it does not mean that he gave up any of his essential attributes, or any of his attributes. God can't give up who he is. He can't carve out part of himself and say, well, I'm, this, I'm no longer holy, or I'm no longer uh, just any of his attributes. Now, when he was on earth, he didn't live out of all those attributes. He lived out of his humanity for the most part. Okay, that's part of his humiliation, living like a servant, living like a human being. But he didn't give up anything that, that makes him God. That's really important to realize. So when it says emptied here, or sometimes translated made nothing, it means more of a, a, a divestiture of position or privilege, one commentator put it. So it's not a loss of divinity or the attributes of divinity. Uh, but he gave up, you know, think of all that, the joy that he had, all the comforts and all this interesting glory forever. And there was a change as he humbled himself coming to this world. I mean, just going through the things that we have to do as a human being, uh, having, to, um, having to eat, you know, having to, uh, you know, being, getting cold, getting hot, getting uncomfortable, getting sick, uh, bathroom issues, all of these, you know, parts of humanity, pain that he would experience. Even in a normal Christian life, that's a big part of it. But notice also how Jesus did this. How did he empty himself? It says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So there's a sense where he emptied himself not by getting rid of something, but in a way by taking something on. Like if you had this expensive, just glorious outfit that you had on, and then you, you know, got a kind of old trench coat and you put it over the top of it. You would still have the glorious outfit on underneath, but it's now veiled in something else. So in a way, his deity is, is veiled in humanity. So you're not seeing the, the visible expression of his deity. You're seeing his humanity instead. And scripture tells us when Jesus was on earth, you couldn't tell that he was God by looking at him. That he didn't have, like some paintings do, he didn't glow from his head okay? He was actually a pretty normal-looking guy. He probably didn't look like all the, he definitely didn't look like a lot of the paintings um, that make him look like some, uh, you know, Norwegian six-foot-four with shampooed hair and all this. Thankfully, he doesn't look like that. But he became a human being. He added humanity to his deity, born in the likeness of men. He came down, he was born of the Virgin Mary. He went through childbirth. He went, we'll talk, save some of this for Christmas. Uh, but he came down and he was born and he grew up. And it says, but notice too, it says, taking the form of a servant. And so now, not only was he God, but he was taking the form and he genuinely, genuinely was a servant and a servant of others. 
Ben Witherington writes about how shocking this would be, how shockingly countercultural this would be. He writes, It would not have been shocking to the Gentiles to hear that their God had chosen to take on human form. That would not be shocking. They had heard such stories about Zeus and Hermes and others, but to be told that their God had chosen to become a slave among humans, that was a very different story. A shocking story because it deconstructed everything they thought was written in stone about the hierarchical nature of reality and relationships and about all their honor and shame codes. We say that now he became a human being. Now, you know, with the Greeks and all that, Zeus, they would take on the appearance. They didn't really become, you know, these human beings. But Jesus Christ, our doctrine said he really genuinely became a human being. And it wasn't just that he became like this great emperor. He became, it says, a servant. It's the same word for slave, actually, that's used here, that he came down to. I mean, consider this. If Almighty God, if Jesus is Almighty God from all eternity, if he had chosen even just to come down to the level of an angel, even the highest of all the angelic beings in all their glory and splendor and power, that would be just a mind-blowing thing to drop down to that level, to become an angel. If the Almighty God even further, had to say, well, I'm going to go even, not just a powerful angel, I'm going to become a human being. But you know what? I'm going to be like an emperor or something like that. I'm going to be the most exalted human being on the face of the earth. I mean, that would still be a mind-blowing thing to consider that. But Jesus, the Son of God, came down not just to that level, not just a powerful angel or emperor, but as a human servant, a human slave on this earth not a slave in the literal sense, but he came to to serve God. And we're going to see the obedience that he had towards God and what he went to do. He didn't come as this mighty one. And this is is beyond belief. Say, well, surely this is as low as you can go. Come down, become a human being in the form of of a servant. Passage keeps going, keeps going down. And to be found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So he's found in human form. He's a a human being. At this point, he's 100% God, 100% human being. Notice he humbled himself. This was not forced upon him. This is something he chose to do, something that he uh, agreed to do, he wanted to do, he had a mission to do. And then he came all the way down. And he'd be bad enough if he lived a a life of servitude and a difficult life and shame, but to death. That indignation that we have, the death, this consequence for sin, this thing we go through, and he he died. This shows true he was a genuine human being. If this was just a phantom, if it was just an image of humanity, you can't actually die became a human being, a genuine human being, so he could have a genuine human death. The one who was the God-man died in virtue of him being a genuine human being. And so that's how obedient he was. To be obedient, it says here, to, to God the Father and the mission that he was sent on to the point of death. Him being willing to do this. You know, Adam, the first human being, he disobeyed. 
plunged us into sin. Christ came into this world as a second Adam, and he obeyed. He obeyed uh, the Father. He uh, submitted even to death. That's got to be as low as it goes. But I left out a little bit. But obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came all the way down, human, servant, death, then death on a cross. It's the most shameful death, the most painful death. Our word excruciating means literally from the cross. Think of the Philippians. Remember how proud they were of their citizenship? We're Roman citizens. One of the perks you had as a Roman citizen is you couldn't be crucified. That was too disgusting. That was too horrible. That might be for those other non-citizens, for the awful offenders. And even then, they didn't want to have to think about it. It was repugnant to them. It was an awful thing. And you couldn't do that to a citizen. Jesus came down even lower than these citizens, even lower than ours, and died a death that was usually reserved for the, the most horrible of the most horrible. Dying on the cross. If you're drawing this in your bulletin, put that cross in the middle there to think of this, all the way down for that. And this was for our salvation. It's the reason that he did it. He didn't have sin of his own that he was atoning for. He was sinless. He was like us in every way, but without sin. But the sin that he took upon himself was our sin, my sin, your sin. That's the sin that was nailed to the cross through him when he was hanging there. The reason that God had to become a human being is because salvation could only be accomplished by the God-man. That in order to die for human beings, he had to be a human, and for his death to be worth enough to save all of us, to save anyone that will repent and turn to him, he had to be valiant enough and that had to be God. And so he was able to do what no one else could do. And he came down for that. There's another side to this parabola. Talk about the humiliation. And there's a part that that comes to an end. The incarnation doesn't, but the humiliation does. And the rest of this talks about this upward slope. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Therefore highly exalted, it's a word for exalted, but uh, it adds the word, or the Greek preface, hyper to it. So he's hyper-exalted. God lifts him as, as high as you can. It means to raise someone to the loftiest heights. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, every knee will bow to Jesus Christ either willingly or unwillingly. We either bow to him as Savior and Lord, we start that now, or one day, everyone's going to have to reckon with him. You can't escape him. You can try to avoid him. You can try and push him off. You can try to pretend he doesn't exist. You can try to have all your excuses, whether it's intellectual excuses. You can try to um, numb yourself with uh, the pleasures and activities of this world and distractions. But one day, we all stand before him to give an account. And you either stand before God with Jesus Christ as your Savior, or you'll stand there apart from him, naked except for your sin. I plead with you to come under the cross, to come under Jesus Christ, the one that loves you so much that he did this 
to secure your salvation. And it is offered to you by his grace freely. It is a gift. He paid it all. Turn to him. Trust him. Accept this gift. It's not something that you work for. You trust him. And you take this gift. Every knee should bow on heaven and earth and under the earth. That means everywhere. In Isaiah 45, 22 and 23, it reads this. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, and by my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Notice that this saying, the one, there's one God, and every knee will bow to him, and there is no other. Jesus Christ has been given this name of Lord, so they refer to uh, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible. Every knee, according to Isaiah, is going to bend to Yahweh, to the God of the Bible. And now it's saying every knee bows to Jesus. Connect the dots here. Jesus Christ is God. He is the Lord. Equal in dignity with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. There's one God, one Trinity, one Godhead. Paul is asserting that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. So we think about this. A few things that we can think about as we conclude. Notice on the one half the humiliation. Who is the one that does these things? It says, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself. Jesus was doing these things voluntarily. Okay, this was his humbling. This wasn't being forced upon him. It was part of God's plan, the the Trinity from all eternity past, yeah, but he did it voluntarily. But then notice on the other side, He doesn't lift himself up. God lifts him up. God gives him this name above every other name. And that's something also that we need to have that mindset we need to emulate. That we need to be willing to bring ourselves low to serve others. We need to humble ourselves. If God chooses to exalt you, if God chooses to lift you up, that's on him and he he may or may not or in a way that's different than you expect. But you don't humble, you don't exalt yourself. That's what Lucifer got in trouble for. I will make my name great. I will be above God. No. We follow Christ coming down with him. It is better to experience self-humiliation and God-exaltation than self-exaltation and God-humiliation. Don't exalt yourself. Leave that to God if he should choose And you worry about going low for the good of others. Another thing to recognize from all of this is that if Jesus wasn't fully God, this would not be an impressive example of humility. Remember the purpose of all of this. We're talking about God in this uh, section here, the Carmen Christi. The whole point of it is to give us an example to follow in humility. But if Jesus wasn't actually God, if he was just some kind of great being, but, you know, not even, not God, then 
you can't really say, wow, what an awesome example of humility that he didn't commit blasphemy and claim to be God. Well, that's just a normal thing that all of us should do, uh, to not claim to be God if we're not. But if he actually was God, if he actually existed as God from all eternity, then to come down like this, that's amazing. That's an awesome example of humility. There's, you couldn't give a more powerful example of humility than, than the Almighty God doing that. So the application shows that the doctrine here is that Jesus Christ is fully God. So from all this, remember just the point of all this, the application. Don't live like you are the most important person in the world. Jesus, being God, actually is the most important person in the world. And he went low to serve others. Have that attitude. Be like that. And ask yourself, what will that mean for you? What do you need to change? What do you need to be doing? How do you need to serve others? Not just in the abstract, in theory one day, but in real life today, this week, going forward. So be like our Savior. Put others first. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you and thank you for the amazing example of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the, the love that he had, which is more than we can comprehend. That the Almighty God, perfect in holiness and all his glory, would come down not to save good, wonderful people, but to save sinners like me. To save sinners like the people listening to this message. Lord, thank you that you came for us, that you descended, that you were willing to let go of the, the, the perks of your position, Lord God, in order to seek and save the lost. Lord God, first and foremost, may we trust you as Savior. May we come under the cross of Christ, trusting salvation, not because of our good deeds or anything that we could do, but because the God-man took our place, that he died for us and gave us this gift that we accept. And Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ did not stay on the cross. Thank you that Jesus Christ did not stay in the grave, but he was raised to life and he was raised back to heaven. And that he, as the God-man, is given the name above every name. And Lord, we bow, we bend our knee to Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our treasure. May we treasure him with our lives. And may you transform us to be like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.